Yeah, on that. Yeah, next week. Uh, how many of you all have old Bibles laying around the house? I know I've got like four or five of these old things. Uh, if, you, if you have those, I encourage you to bring them in next Sunday, taking up an offering to go to some people overseas who have little to no access to the Scriptures. Uh, and the Lord has blessed us and our country uh, that oftentimes we have six or seven of them laying around in the house. So, uh, again, bring those in next Sunday. And again, just another welcome to the fathers this morning. Um, on your way out this morning, whether you're a father or not, if you're a man, because we did this with the women, all the women got uh, a flower, whether or not they were moms. So all the fathers, whether or not you are a father, all the men, uh, help yourself to some donuts out there. Uh, and also there's a little packet of coffee. It's a good, it's good coffee. I've tried it myself. Um, that is, uh, it'll make about one pot of coffee. And all the money from the proceeds from that coffee company actually go to support uh, worldwide evangelism in hard-to-reach places. Um, and so I thought that was a, a worthy gift for the men of this church. Um, so with that, let me uh, uh, invite you to open up to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me uh, ask the Lord to bless our time in the text this morning. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word this morning. We thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, as we've already mentioned, Father Lord, that we only know what good fathers are because we know you. And as we'll see in the text this morning, Father, those who did not know you and the outcome of their life. So, Father Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes for a few moments this morning that we may see beautiful and trustworthy things from the scriptures that we may uh, understand and know how we ought to walk and live as your people in your world. Pray for all this and more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I remember when I first became a father, <clears throat> when I first got the news uh, that, that we were uh, having a child, uh, I was playing a video game. <laughs> and it just so happens that I was, uh, it was a day I had taken off work uh, because we had had uh, men in the house to uh, replace our HVAC work. So a new AC, new furnace, all the, all the things. Uh, and it's about 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm there playing video games, as you do on your day off when you don't have children. Um, and, and all of a sudden, I get a text from my wife, who's in the bedroom, and said, let's, uh, let, let's go out somewhere. I said, hon, the whole reason I'm off work is so I can stay here at the house to make sure these men don't rob us blind, because that's what contractors do, right? It's just like, you know, I mean, I don't know. I took off work, and, and then here she is saying, well, we should go out. Let's leave. And I said, honey, we can't leave. Um, and, and so she what says, well, well, just come back here. Just put the video game down and just come back here to the bedroom. And uh, I go back there, and then she tells me that um, she's pregnant and with child, uh, to which I don't really remember my reaction. I remember laying, waking up on the ground um, a little while later, just flabbergasted by this news uh, that, that I would be a father. Uh, and since then, we've uh, now had uh, three more conversations, very similar to that conversation. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, but as I became a father, I remember thinking, uh, what, what, my whole life's different. Uh, my whole life's different. Everything that I thought I knew. You see, before I was a father, I thought I was a wise man. And then I realized I was having a daughter and realized I knew nothing. Uh, I remember telling my wife uh, coming when we found out that it was a daughter, when like, Marley was a girl. Uh, I remember telling my wife as we were leaving the ultrasound place, I said, well, what if she doesn't even love me? And she says, well, of course she'll love you. Of course she will. And then my thoughts turned, well, 
what will my kid's reaction be to the Lord and to the great father? What if they don't love him? How do we, how do we train up our children in the way of the Lord? How do we, how do we make right, our children love the Lord? And so over the years, I'm now eight years, seven years, seven and a half years into this thing called fatherhood. Uh, and what I learned, the, the longer I'm a father, is that, that we cannot save our children. We cannot save our children. Rather, all we can do, mom, dad, is place the firewood around their hearts and hope and pray that the Lord would catch it on fire. And so my hope as a father, then, for all of my children is to be not only uh, their pastor, which I am, and not only to be a, a good father, which I strive to be, but to be a, a follower of Jesus, first and foremost, for them. So that they would see, and they would grow up, and they would see, my dad loved Jesus, and that's the only thing I need to know. Of course, we have God's word and we have God's spirit, but I want my example of my life and the, the way in which I walk, the way in which I treat other people to be how Jesus treats them. I want them to see Jesus in me. I wonder, fathers, is that the, what you hope your children see in you? Well, as we turn our attention now to the book of Samuel, let me remind you of where, we are, or where we're at in this story. Um, you'll remember from chapter 1 that, that we come upon the scene of a young woman in distress and anguish because she has no children. No children. And, and, and what you'll learn this morning is that, that in the book of Samuel, what, what the author continually does is continues to provide for us comparing and contrasting individuals. He's using stories as a means to point us to something true about God and something true about the way in which we should live our lives. And you see this in, in very quickly in the first few verses of the book of Samuel where you have a comparing and contrasting of Hannah and Elkanah's other wife, Penea. Right, Penea is the, uh, the antagonist of the story, right? She is uh, ridiculing Hannah and yet we see Hannah not returning in kind but rather turning to the Lord to, to worship him, to seek him, to ask him to give her a child and of course he does. And we see that the, uh, Hannah then gives this child to the Lord at the end of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we get Hannah's prayer. And let me just remind you of this, some of the things that Hannah's prayer does, Hannah's song does, and, and in the beginning part of chapter 2, uh, is it sets for us the stage by which we are actually to understand all the coming stories in the book of Samuel. You'll remember at the end of 2 Samuel is another poem structured very much along the same themes that we find in this poem. And, and we as good readers should pick up on that and realize that then all of this is not disconnected stories, but rather that the song of Hannah, the prayer of Hannah, should be the means by which we interpret all the other stories. So here are the big three themes out of Hannah's prayer. Uh, we see that, that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. And we also see that despite human evil, God is at work. Despite human evil, God is at work in them. We also see that God will raise up his messianic king, his Christ, his anointed one, which we know to be Jesus. 
And so given that all of this is true of God and the story that which we find ourselves in, the story in which Hannah and Samuel and Eli and his sons find themselves in, we turn to the next story in the book of Samuel, which the author gives us as two ways of approaching this great reality, these great reality truths that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, Despite human evil, God is at work, and that God will raise up his messianic king. You have two ways uh, of approaching this reality. And likewise, you and I, friends, have two ways of what are we going to do with these truths. Two ways to approach it. You have the, the sons of Eli, or you can approach it as the son of Hannah. So look with me at verse 12. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Uh, If, like me, you're reading from the ESV, you'll see that it says these are worthless men. Uh, I know a vast majority of you use the NIV, and it says that they they were wicked men. And if you have the old school King James Version, it says that these were sons of Belial. Uh, the, the underlying Hebrew says that they were, uh, these were the, the sons of Eli, or uh, Ben-Eli and Ben-Beliah. Right? The, the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial. The language carries with it the sense that these are folks, these are men of utter destruction and utter worthlessness. Pairing this with the, the next statement then, that they did not know the Lord. Uh, The the picture being painted for us is that these men, as as one commentator said, are unrestrained thugs. Unrestrained thugs. There's this rhyming going on in the Hebrew, right? The son of, the son of Eli, the son of Belial, worthlessness, shows that although these boys were physically sons of Eli, physical sons of a priest, they were spiritually the sons of the devil. They were sons of Belial. They had no regard for the things of God. Or as we'll see later, the things of their father. The story then moves into the next verse to show us uh, a real life case of just how wicked these men, these boys are. Look at verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. While the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who, who came there. So stop there for a minute. Let me describe for you a little bit about the, the Jewish process by which they would sacrifice these offerings. Anytime the children of Israel brought to the temple an offering, the offering was in three parts, three parts. The first part was to be uh, the part devoted to the Lord. This is the Lord's offering, the sacrifice. It's not for anyone else. The second part of the sacrifice uh, was meant for the provision for the priests, the folks who worked in the temple, the folks who oversaw the rituals. This second portion was for them. And then the third portion was for the one who was offering up the sacrifice. So they would offer, they would burn it, they would boil it, and then they would eat it. And this was a sign by which they were uh, giving to the Lord. And so what the, what the text is telling us then is that as they were cooking it in the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, or whatever they had, what the priest would then do is then disregard the order by which these sacrifices were to be made. Remember, the Lord, the priest, the, the, the worshiper. And they would take their three-pronged fork and merely stab it into that pot to get their own meat. 
So number one, like they are robbing from the people. They're robbing from the people in the sense that uh, they are the ones picking. They're robbing from the people in the sense that they are taking the offering, which, by the way, was meant to uh, atone for a time for their sin. But notice, notice verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give, me, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. This is, um, this is where they really begin to steal from the Lord. I mean, how many of you have ever eaten boiled meat? I mean, it's great for things like stew and stuff, but compared to a ribeye cooked on the grill, it's disgusting. And this is what these men were doing, right? They were, they were bypassing the way in which this meat was prepared. And they, they would go to these people sacrificing them. You know what? Just give, me, just give me what I want. Give me the raw meat. We'll cook it up. We'll dice it up. We'll chef it up. However we see fit. The fat was the part offered to the Lord. The Lord loves the fat. And, and this was, they were saying, no, 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 we're going to take it first. Don't boil that meat. Let me smoke it perhaps. Let me grill it up, slice it up the way I want. And here they're robbing not from the people, but now from God himself. And then, of course, we see in verse 17 the, the, the outcome of this, uh, the, the result or the, uh, the underlying part of this. Thus the sin of the young men, verse 17, was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, it's very rare in the book of Samuel that the commentator, the, the narrator of the story, actually gives you what's going on behind the scenes like he does here. He, he says, this sin, the sin of these young men, which, by the way, is what the term will be used for Samuel in a minute. The, 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 sense is the sin of these boys was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The author is giving you insights into what's really going on behind the scenes here. It wasn't just so much that these men were robbing from God. They had no respect of God. They did not know God. And so they were taking from God's people and from God. It's very great. And then, of course, the comparing and contrasting immediately shifts here in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Uh, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Notice this comparing, contrasting. There, you know that this is what the author is doing because here there's no mention of the other two boys, Hophni and Phinehas. There's no mention of them. It merely shifts over. It's if like, again, my wife and I were watching a documentary this week, and this is, uh, I pause it in the middle of the documentary, and I said, see, that's what I'm talking about, babe, on Sunday morning. Uh, when uh, when, the, uh, when the, the, the person of the documentary, uh, they, will, they will start, like, they'll have this cutover, right? The, the, um, 
I won't get into the details of the documentary we were watching, but they were saying basically like uh, there was this large sum of money left uh, after the guy left an organization. Uh, and they were talking about like conspiracy, like maybe somebody's going to rise up and actually take hold of that organization to control their money. And, like the, that's, the, the, that's the language being presented, the images being shown. And then without saying a word, the very next scene cuts over to another man. And they don't say anything. The implication, right, the documentary wanting you to feel like, oh, he's the guy. He's going to step into that organization, take over that money, that power, right, without ever actually saying it. The writers of the Old Testament did this time and time again. So you see, the, the writer of Samuel stands before you, these two men who do not know the Lord, have contempt for the things of the Lord. And then immediately the scene cuts over. Here's young Samuel living and raised up in the temple around the things of God, growing in the presence of the Lord. The writer wants you to feel the differences here. You see, Samuel wears a linen ephod, which is the mark of the priest. Meanwhile, the boys, uh, the sons of Eli, had no bearings about them that would actually say these are godly men. Eli blesses Hannah's family and asks the Lord to give them more and more children, which he does. Meanwhile, his own sons know nothing of the Lord. Eli's sons knew nothing of the Lord, is what it says in verse 12. Meanwhile, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. He wants you to feel, the author wants you to feel, the Spirit wants you to feel the weight of this. And again, all of this is flowing from the reality of what Hannah's song, Hannah prayer uh, said, that the God exalts uh, the humble and, and brings down uh, the, the, the prideful, right? So what are we going to do about Eli's sons? Well, the, the author wants you to already know what's coming, that, that this is what God does, this is what God will do. Despite human evil, God is at work. And notice now the story cuts back over to Eli's sons. <clears throat> Look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. By the way, Paul's right there for a moment. Uh, at this point in the story, we have no idea what to think about Eli, right? Is Eli a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he doing things right? Is he doing things wrong? But we do have a few clues about how we should be thinking and processing all that Eli is doing. Remember, uh, when, when, when uh, Hannah went to the temple to pray, and she was praying silently in her heart, but her lips were moving, what was Eli's response? Elijah's response was like, woman, how long will you go continue coming to the temple being drunk? And he tries to like send her away. And then she says, uh, I'm not a worthless woman, right? A son of Belial, right? You see what the author's doing here. Uh, and you're kind of left with a sense. And then Eli sees that, oh, oh, oh she's actually uh, a Lord. Uh, she's a, a lover of the Lord. She's following the Lord, seeking the Lord's will in her life. And he says, oh, well, let me bless you then. Right? You get the sense that like, I don't know about this guy. He's, he, he's not very smart, if anything. He didn't realize prayer when it was right in front of him at the temple. Up until this point, you're not quite sure what to think of Eli. Eli just blessed them again, right? The, the parents of, of Samuel, he blessed them again, and then we see that more children come to the family. Up until this point, you're like, ah, I really don't know. I know his sons are worthless. I know they don't know the Lord. But what about Eli? What's his role in all this? Verse 22 tells us he's, he's, he's very old. 
Uh, and yet he keeps hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Of course, the author is meaning everything that he just talked about and more. Verse 22, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And, and so he says to them, verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if he sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. One of the key words that you'll notice in this section and continuing in through chapter 3 is this idea of constant referring back to hearing. And this provides a very good summary of what Eli knew to be happening of the activity of one of his sons. Like in verse 22, it says he heard everything his sons were doing. More than that, also about the fact, more than what the author mentioned in the previous section, but the fact that they, uh, in addition to their sanctuary sins, they have now added sexual sins. And so then he tells his sons in verse 23, he says, I I've heard from all the people. In verse 24, he acknowledges that the report that he has heard is not good. And in verse 25, he warns his sons that direct sin against God himself is a very, very dangerous thing. And of course, this story then ends in verse 25 with his sons not listening, not hearing the voice of their father. Here are the, is one of the most egregious sins these men could have been doing. Their sin is being done in the very... Think about it. Think about what the author is wanting you to know, what the Spirit is wanting you to know. The temple was meant for what? For atoning, for offering sacrifices to God. It was meant to come to a place where you could have and meet with the presence of God, mediated through a priest, so that you could have right standing with the Lord. And the priest, the one whose job it was to lead you into holy communion with the Lord, have no idea who that Lord is. Moreover, as they were sleeping with the women of the temple, uh, the, the, the idea is that like, these people are completely blind. Not only are they blind to their sin, but they're, they're blind to the fact that this is the place designed by God for the place for sins to be dealt with. And it's a, a direct affront to God and showing disdain for God's means of providing for sin. This, of course, leads to the last line there, verse 25. Did you notice that the narrator of the story gives you a bit of insight in what is happening here? At the end of verse 25, it says, They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This type of language, this type of uh, that they would not listen because of something the Lord had done, this is language that comes from uh, the use of Pharaoh, right? Remember Pharaoh, uh, as Moses approached Pharaoh and said, let my people go, this is what the Lord says, and, and then he, he wouldn't. And then Moses goes back again and says, let my people go, and he would not. And then it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could show the Pharaoh and the nations how great he was. 
You see, God is sovereign over all things. And these men already did not know the Lord. They had contempt for the Lord. The authors already told us that. Therefore, the Lord basically hardens their ears, if you will, here. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The Lord has already made up his mind about what's going to happen with these fools. These thugs have blatantly disregarded the things of God and could care less about it. Therefore, Eli briefly brings it up to them and they will not listen. But what about Eli then? Again, what is his standing in all of this? What else does Eli do as the father, as the high priest in Shiloh? What is he to do? Well, from here on out, he does nothing. He does nothing. He, he kind of pulls these boys to the side, right? You get the sense in the way that he approaches them, the way the conversation plays out. And he kind of gives them a talking to. And then that's it. He doesn't discipline them. He doesn't remove them from their role as priests. He doesn't even directly rebuke his sons. He's like, hey, 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 like y'all know this isn't a good thing, right? He knows what they are doing is wrong. But he has a sort of laissez-faire approach to how to handle the situation. And this becomes a major theme throughout the book of Samuel. This theme of the idea of fathers failing to restrain their sons. Eli here rebukes his sons, but lamely and ineffectually. Saul will rebuke both David and Jonathan, but not for their wicked deeds, but for their righteous deeds. Most of 2 Samuel is, is playing out how David fails massively to restrain his own sons. This becomes a major theme throughout the entire book. And we see it that, that even here, the way that we should interpret the story is Eli fails to properly rebu rebuke and restrain his sons here. But then notice this next verse, which contrasts again the story of Eli and his sons to the son of Hannah, just very quickly, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Again, it's the, the documentary approach to reading our scriptures. Like, here is like this failure over here. But then very quickly, look at Samuel. You've got these failures of sons over here, but look at Samuel. Again, this is the same language that Luke picks up in Luke chapter 2 when describing Jesus' growth in childhood. In verse 40, chapter 2, he says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. A few verses later, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, Samuel is appointing to Jesus in this passage. Finally, we come to see God's word coming to Eli here in verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off from your strength and the strength of your father's house. So there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. We see in this passage, of course, the the judgment coming to Eli. Notice again with me there in verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, well, now wait, this is important. Because the man comes to Eli and not to his sons. This is massively important for us to recognize that they come to Eli and not to son. The the idea then is that this means that Eli is being held responsible for the actions of his sons. And notice this unnamed man of God, if you're familiar with your Bibles, and especially the book of Samuel, is very similar to Nathan in in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Right, Nathan who comes to David after his sin with Bathsheba and gives a very similar judgment call upon David that, 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 that Eli receives here. Right, so some comparisons and contrasting between what David receives versus what Eli receives here. Number one is that, that both of them are introduced and announced as something that the Lord says. Right here in our text, uh, it says in verse 20, 27, let me turn my page. <clears throat> there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord. Very similarly, Nathan approached David uh, with a very similar, thus says the Lord. Uh, also, the, the backdrop of the judgment that is coming is the grace of God. You see here in verse 27 and verse 28, he, he, he begins by saying, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Of course, talking about uh, Moses' brother Aaron. And he's saying, like, listen, I've done nothing. The Lord is saying to Eli, I've done nothing but be gracious to you. I have given you everything. I've rescued you out of Egypt. I've given you the place as my priest, taking care of you, giving you the uh, offerings from the people of Israel. Of course, David's situation is very similar. David is a king who has uh, unlimited resources and sees one sheep, right, is the, the analogy that Nathan uses. The response to the grace that's been shown by God is scorn for God's generosity. Scorn for God's generosity, a, a failing to give God the appropriate response and instead acting in our own favor in our own family. 
Right? You, you see in verse 29 here where it says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people. So this is important because in the English we, we, we kind of miss it here when it says, Why do you scorn my sacrifices? The you here is plural. In the Hebrew, it's, it's plural. In, in other words, it's basically like saying, why do y'all? It's my favorite way to read the scriptures, by the way. Why do y'all scorn my sacrifices? Why do y'all scorn my sacrifices? That's what he's saying. You see, Eli is not just a, a bystander in the, sons, in the sins of his son. Rather, he's an active participant by his lack of a, disciplining him. And then, of course, there is a promise that judgment will come upon them. Here, what we see at the, here through the end of the chapter is the promise that God will roll back his promise to, San, to Eli, to the, to, to the Aaron order, and he will replace Eli and his family with another family. That's the, that's the, that is the judgment that will come upon Eli here. He says, he says, you'll know this to be true because both of your sons are going to die in the same day. Like, that'll be the sign by which you know, Eli. This is not random circumstance. Rather, this is the God of the universe exalting the lowly and tearing down the prideful. This is the God of the universe at work despite evil human works. One of the big differences, though, between uh, the word given to Eli and the word given to David is that in Eli's case, the previous promise by God is turned back because of sin. We see that in verse 30, that, that God says, you know what, you, you, you've sinned too much. The promise is now null and void. I'm rolling it back. But in David's case, that never comes. There is no repealing of the promise that God had made to David. What promise is that? 2 Samuel 7, 13 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The judgment given to Eli and his house is a promise to decimate his family and end their ministry within Israel. But even though David sinned, there is no promise that, you know what? Cut it off, we're done. Instead, there is a promise and a looking forward to a better David. This, this replacement within uh, the context here, of course, what the, what the Lord has for the readers then and the readers now is that uh, Eli's sons will no longer be the priest. Instead, who will become like the priest? Samuel. The one the author's been telling you about the whole time, growing in stature, uh, growing in the presence of the Lord. This immediate transferring of the priesthood will be to Samuel. But in the larger context of the Old Testament, we see that Eli's descendants uh, become replaced in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. His, his uh, descendant Abathar is replaced by uh, Zadok in, in 1 Kings but in the ultimate context, what we ultimately see from this text is that this text will be a replacement, not with another man, but with God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And we see that this, this coming Messiah will combine all the roles which are prominent in the book of Samuel, which is the role of prophet, priest, and king. All of those ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So that's the text this morning. I want to close with three observations and applications, then I'll be out our way, and you can go grill some steaks or whatever it is you do for Father's Day. Three observations. Number one, knowing the Lord is the determining factor in your relationship with Christ. The story begins with the story of two sons, two, uh, two sons of Eli, sons of Belial, worthless men who did not know the Lord. As parents, as fathers, as mothers in this room, we may often be wondering, how can we make our children love the Lord? How can we make them come to that place? And ultimately, it's, we need to realize that through this, this story specifically, that you can grow up in church. You can be surrounded by other Christian believers. You can be homeschooled and never sent to public school and still not know God. The, the, the relationship between us knowing God and not is do we know Jesus? Do we have a relationship with Jesus? Or are we merely in close proximity to those who do? Friends, knowing the Lord is the determining factor in our relationship with Christ. And the only way, the only way to know the Lord is to know Jesus. For it's Jesus who shines with the radiance of the glory of God the Father. It's through Jesus that we are shown God. What's John say in the opening line uh, that, that no one has ever seen God? Right? That, that no one has seen God because God is invisible and yet it's through Jesus that we see God. It's through Jesus that we know God. By the way, this is a helpful practice. Anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you get this angel of the Lord or you get this appearance of the Lord or even you hear this voice of the Lord, it's helpful for us as Trinitarians, those who believe in the triune God, as all Christians do, that we should read that as Jesus showed up. Right, so the story of Abraham, right, where uh, the, the, the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham. We shouldn't read that as like some God, angel of the Lord over here, but rather that Jesus showed up and said to him. Like this is how we should read the Old Testament because God, uh, there, there's not a God over here and then here's Jesus. And that's often how we approach the Old Testament, how we approach life. Or that there's some spirit wafting in the winds over here, but over here is Jesus. No, 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 that's one and the same God. This is how we know God. We only know the Lord when we know Jesus. When the Bible speaks of the Lord, it speaks of Jesus. When the Bible speaks of Jesus, it's speaking of the Lord. Knowing the Lord is the determining factor in our relationship with Christ. Number two, it is true God will resist the proud and exalt the humble. Therefore, we should put our hope in the sovereign God. Throughout the book of Samuel, we will see continuously flawed people act with a high hand towards God, like we've seen today with the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. These people who act with a high hand of God, who do not know God. Similarly, in our lives, we will be continuously confronted with those who do not know God. 
The question will not be, will we be around people who do not share our faith? The question is, how will we respond to those who do not share our faith? Will we fail to believe that God is the one in control or will we humbly trust His sovereign work? Now, we can say, well, we believe God is in control as long as the day is longer, however that phrase goes. But do our actions truly show it? Do we walk humbly or arrogantly? Do we trust in the government more than we trust in our God? Listen, as I said last week, we are exiles living in our own land. And we should continue to push back against the darkness in our day, in our city. Uh, and this will oftentimes look, us, look like us as Christians, as those who are Christ followers. It will look as, as if we are opposing everyone. It will look as if we are against the city. But listen, we are always against the city or against culture for the sake of the city or the sake of the culture. But our ultimate hope is not in the work that we can bring about with our own hands. Our hope, friends... Is a calm, steady reliance on the Lord. Listen, if we put our trust in humans, then we end up in hopelessness because humans are sinful. God will resist the proud and exalt the humble. Therefore, put your hope in the sovereign God. Finally, a note for fathers. Fathers, we must take our fatherhood and the duties and responsibilities that go with it Seriously, we must take them seriously. The more and more I talk with fathers my own age, the more I am convinced that we have been untrained in how to raise our children. Perhaps like Eli, we were laissez-faire approach to our children in the nurturing and raising them in the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Eli and his sons teach us that there is no neutrality here. He cannot just raise his sons, bring them to church, and, and, you know, we'll see what happens. Of course they love Jesus. No. As Eli and his sons teach us that this is not a new problem facing men or fathers today, this is a sign of the human condition. So let me give you three points that I kind of put in my own, uh, as I think through, uh, I began this sermon, like, what are, what's the hope of, uh, I have as a father? Let me, uh, three things, and they all start with P, because I'm a good Baptist. Number one, fathers, we must be present. We must be present. By the way, this is something, uh, you know, this generation seems to get. We seem to get it. We, we grew up on the sitcoms, right, uh, of fathers coming home after a long day of work and then turn around and leaving for multiple hours and then coming back. Now, by the way, let me just say, that sounds really nice. Like, some of you older folks know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, fathers would just come home and then they would just completely disengage. They go do all for hours, whatever they wanted, but that's not the case of fathers today. We seem to understand that, that being present as a father creates a world of difference in the raising of our children. And we must be present. But it also means we need to be attentive in our presentness. You know, this is a, 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 a way in which we need to think through and be actively present right so we we've maybe put down the cell phones and put down the newspapers do they even make newspapers anymore we've put down the newspapers and we say yes we're here but are we there really or are we somewhere else in our minds we must be present fathers we must also number two be patient fathers we must be patient fathers 
This is probably the biggest thing that I struggle with most in my own parenting is patience. It's patience. This comes across as if I have to repeat myself more than once, you can tell I'm flustered. But we must be patient because the Lord is patient with us. What this looks like in a day-to-day grind as you leave, like, well, I don't know what to do with that sermon, Pastor. Like, here's what it looks like uh, for you young, raising young kids. It looks like I'm going to have to say this a thousand times to my child. A thousand times. And it's okay. We keep on going. We keep being patient, raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are patient with our children. Number three, we are persistent with our children. We must not take our fatherhood and the duties and the responsibilities that go with it lightly, but we must take it seriously. And part of that seriousness means that we must continually, continually talk to our children about the things of the Lord. I wonder how often, as parents, we actually listen to our children. I'm, I'm saying this like I'm, I'm a part of who I'm preaching to right now, okay? Like, this isn't me like, be better. It's not that. But oftentimes, when my kids come to me with something to say, I'm just like, I try to answer it before they even finish it, because I'm like, I ain't, again, going back to the patience thing, I ain't got time for this. I got a thousand things I need to do today, children. But I wonder if we would truly listen to the things that they're saying and understand that all issues of life are gospel issues. Like, all issues of life are gospel issues. I don't think that's true. It is. All issues of life are gospel issues in the sense that some way it's a failing to trust God. Whenever we're, like, uncertain about life. Like, we, we, we don't truly believe he's, uh, he's sovereign or in control, so that looks like, well, i got to take control. I don't trust him to be in control. i got to take control. And that can play out in a million different ways in conversations. Or it looks as if, well, I, I know the Bible says God's good, but what I feel right now is I feel like he's not being good. So I'm not sure about that, Pastor. You know, it's this approach to life that says, uh, you know, maybe he's good some of the times, but, you know, this really bad thing in my past happened, so I'm not quite sure he's good. No, 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 even then he's good. You see what I mean? All of life is, all problems in our life is gospel. The thing is, are we listening for it? Or do we just think that, uh, well, you know, the gospel is just something that happens on Sunday morning? We must be persistent in teaching our kids uh, what this book says and who this book points to as the way in which we should live our life. We must be persistent. This means it's not a fly-by-night. It means it's not a flash in the pan. Fathers, this means it looks like you're going to have to take this book and read it. And what does it say? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about the way in which we should approach our daily lives? We must be persistent. Present, patient, persistent. Lastly, the final implication. We must look to the Father who loved us enough to adopt us into his family and we must love our children like that listen if you try to do all all of these good gospel parenting in and of your own effort you will fail you'll become frustrated flustered uh, and, and flunk out three f's there it is how do you do this how do you teach your children how do you raise your children all the while knowing that you know they may not end up loving the lord They might not. Generally, they do. 
but they might not. You could have 10 kids and uh, nine of them follow the Lord and one of them not and be like, well, they were raised exactly the same. It's true. It's the Lord alone who changes hearts and gives us new life. We look to him. We pray to him. We set the fire around their hearts in order that God might light it ablaze with the glory and love and passion for Jesus. But we look to the Father who loved us as the source to do this sort of parenting, do this sort of fathering. Eli is a good example of what not to do. Hophni and Phinehas are good examples of how not to be. And Samuel and Hannah are great examples of how to live your life. So fathers, let me encourage you that you can do this. You can love your children well. You can raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So can you moms. But ultimately, we trust in the sovereign father who works even amidst and despite human sinful actions. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is your providence alone which led us to this text this morning. And so, Father, as we consider Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, Samuel, Hannah, Elkanah, Lord, as we consider the characters in this story and how they ultimately point to Jesus who would come and be the one who would be the great priest, the great high priest, the prophet, the king. Lord, as we look back to his story and we try to think about our own stories and our own lives and our own kids and our daily problems and where are my keys father i pray that we would see all of life as gospel that we see opportunities to encourage one another with the gospel to raise our kids up in the gospel father because the good news of jesus father is not just that that he died and we get to go to heaven the good news is that he's given us new hearts He's making all things new, and he's coming again. Therefore, how do we live in light of that, Father? Show us how. Let us walk like Jesus walked. Let us love like Jesus loved, with grace and truth. Father, I thank you for the men and women of this church, Father, Lord, who love you, who long for you, who pray for the coming day of the Lord. And I pray that you would encourage us all to continue to follow you, Follow Jesus and know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Phil.